Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, I talk with Sandy Summers, the executive director of The Truth About Nursing, about a nurse who has been convicted, tried, convicted, and is going to jail for a medication error that she made in 2017. This is a horrific story, and nurses around the globe are very distressed about it. Also going to be talking about the benefits of caffeine for your heart and how about sweet and low is it good or not tune in you'll find out also going to be talking about the pandemic is it over i'm not so sure anyway the sunday night health show podcast starts now this is the sunday night health show i am maureen mcgrath as many of you know i am a registered nurse and i have been in practice for a number of years and i've worked in everything from ICU to PAR, post-anesthetic recovery, maternity, pediatrics, med surge. I have a, a varied background. And uh, medical errors are a concern, especially for nurses, because there are so many medical errors that occur. They're actually quite common. They can be delayed diagnosis or infection, bad medical devices, And one of the most common mistakes that occurs in the course of medical treatment is an error in medication administration. I have made that error myself, which is why I was so concerned when I saw this article about a nurse and was made aware of the case in the US. A former nurse was criminally prosecuted for a fatal drug error in 2017. She was convicted of gross neglect of an impaired adult and negligent homicide after a three-day trial in Nashville, Tennessee. This case that involves former registered nurse Redonda Vaught has gripped nurses the world over. Joining me on the line is Sandy Summers. She is the executive director at The Truth About Nursing, and she joins me from Baltimore City County, Maryland in the U.S. Good evening, Sandy. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Maureen. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. I I think nurses around the globe are, you know, having sleepless nights about this, unnerved. I mean, there were so many issues um, pushing nurses prior to the pandemic, which was in 2017. And the pandemic has only made things worse for nurses in terms of of short staffing. But, But something about nurses, I mean, not that it's expected that errors will occur, but errors do occur, especially medication errors. And it's typically um, not a criminal case. People are not, nurses are not typically charged with gross neglect. They're not criminally prosecuted. More so, nurses are supported in this because nurses never have the intention of harming a patient of theirs. They want the best for their patients and their families. Nurses around the world, myself included, are distraught over this happening. Uh, you know, and I, and I will say that with all due respect to the family of the patient who died, um, who was actually going to be discharged very shortly, but um, this was an accident. And what is so unusual about this is that the nurse has been prosecuted and is facing jail time. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, thank you. So I'm really pretty distressed myself about how this has all come down. Um, this nurse was, a, she 
she made errors. There's no there's no question. She made errors. She should have done things differently. And I, like you, have nothing but sympathy for the family here. And I understand they're not even uh and they were not even in favor of the prosecution. It's not clear to me where the idea to to criminally charge this nurse came from. Um, but so there are many system errors in the hospital, how um, the hospital system itself was set up and set her up to fail. So she drew the medication out of the automatic medication machine because she typed in the letters VE looking for the medication versed. But it didn't come up because it was the trade name and uh, the met, the machine only gave generic names for the medication. But why didn't the machine have both names? We commonly use, especially with, <clears throat> excuse me, benzodiazepines like uh, mm. Versed or Ativan, Valium, Xanax, those medications. We typically use the trade name because it's two syllables and the benzodiazepines are so many and they have long, complicated names. So if you want to set nurses up to succeed, you would put the name that we commonly use in there. And I know there's absolutely, a, yeah, a lot of just for the rules, listeners. But, okay. Oh, sorry. Just oh, sorry. for the listeners, the difference between Versed and Vercuronium, which is what she used, Versed would have relaxed her, but Vercuronium, which is what came out of the medication dispenser, is a paralytic. Yeah, absolutely. So the patient appears to have stopped breathing. Yes. It's not and clear so someone patient, testified. Go ahead. Yes. And so the patient um, was essentially paralyzed and, and was being resuscitated by uh, Rodonda's colleagues. Right, right. So, so, so you know, it's tragic. Um, but there was someone who testified at the trial who said it's possible it could have been from a brain bleed, but you know, I, I think most people figure that Vecuronium is pretty... It's just a bad drug to be given by mistake if you're not on a ventilator. If you're on a ventilator, it's fine. You, the machine breathes for you, but she was not. So That's there, right. there were, yeah. So the system, like why didn't the medication system give her the option of Versed when she typed in VE? Instead, it gave her one medicine. She was distracted because she was orienting someone new, and it wasn't, it also kind of wasn't her patient. She was a help-all nurse, a resource nurse. And so she uh, was asked by the primary nurse to go down to the PET scan and give it to her. And then another problem that happened is often, you know, nurses were supposed to scan medications with a barcode. We scan the patient's um, wristband, and then we scan the medication and make sure the prescription is in the computer and that we have the right patient, the right medication. But there's no scanner down in the PET scan or MRI, X-ray. There's never scanners down there. Why? You know why? We need scanners everywhere. everywhere. Right. And that is one of the most risky places to give medication. We're always hearing about codes in the CAT scan, codes in MRI, because it's so hard to get patients down there. They're in a tube. You can't see them very well. It's so hard to monitor them, and, you know, you don't, you don't have very good access. You're you're out of your zone as a nurse. You don't have your same monitors and equipment and access to medications. Um, so 
if the hospital wanted to set us, up, set us up to succeed, they would give us a scanner, they would give us a computer, they would give us access. You know, so that in the trial uh, to remove her license, they said, oh, a reasonable nurse would have dragged the patient all the way to, and to a place where there was a computer with a scanner. <laughs> no reasonable nurse would do that. No nurse I have ever met would do that, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so I, it's often, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, yeah. I will say I probably would have checked and double-checked. And nurses are always checking and double-checking, which is another source of stress, just to make sure that they're not going to make a mistake. Right. She checked a number of things. She brought the patient's label with her and checked it against the name band to make sure she had the right patient. She looked at the label to learn how to mix it up. It was a powder. She had to mix it up. I mean, she didn't check nothing. I fully agree. Oh, yeah. She could have checked more. You know, she clearly could have done way more. But she wasn't... Uh, Oh, absolutely. She wasn't 100% responsible for this error. And Vanderbilt... No, and I fully agree with you. Yeah, throwing her to the wolves, making it out uh, to seem as if she's fully responsible and putting her in, in jail. This is no way to... This is no way to transform the healthcare system and, and allow us to learn about errors. You know, no one's Absolutely. going to want to come forward and say, this system is broken. Look, I just made this error. We have to fix the system. Nobody's going to say anything about errors because who knows if you're going to go to jail. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. I'm a registered nurse. Joining me on the line is Sandy Summer. She's the executive director at The Truth About Nursing. And we are talking about nurse former nurse, which I hate to say, former nurse for Don DeVott. She's been criminally prosecuted. Uh, she's been convicted of gross neglect, and she is looking at jail time. Sandy, thank you so much for staying on the line. This My is pleasure. such an unusual uh, such an unusual um, event for nurses. Nurses t- typically are not punished for mistakes that they have made. And in fact, there was a review done of Redonda Vaught after this occurred. I, I do want to say when, when they were coding the patient and, and Redonda Vaught, if you're just joining us now, gave the wrong medication accidentally to her patient and the patient coded and her colleagues were resuscitating her and, and Redonda said, I gave Vercuronium instead of Versed. And, and her colleague said to her, I'm so sorry. They, they knew. They, it was such an empathic response as they resuscitated this woman and tried to do everything to bring her back to life, but was unsuccessful in their efforts. How, how is this going to impact? You say there are so many system-wide issues, and, and I've experienced that myself. I didn't have the equipment one time. I, I was the nurse manager in a perinatal and pediatric services area, and I said, we are actually going to need electrocardiogram that can actually show the rhythm um, in case a patient codes here. Uh, and people, you know, fought me. They didn't want to have that particular machinery. It wasn't in the budget. They weren't going to buy it. Lo and behold, about a week later, we had a nurse who made a medication error and then left the patient, did not observe her. The patient was a respiratory arrest. She was nine months pregnant. And of course, what did the intensivist want when he came to attend the code, he wanted an electrocardiogram that read out the heart rhythm, not just the rate. Uh, you can imagine how 
terrible. I, I felt that I hadn't fought more and advocated more for my patients. Um, but when we make a mistake, even in that situation, that nurse was not punished. There was a review done. How can we do it better the next time? How can we prevent this from happening again? Medication errors are so common. How is this going to affect nurses? And, and, I, and I do want to say one more thing. Radon Devot is the most gracious nurse I've ever met. She has taken this so gracefully, so beautifully, and she must be suffering so tremendously. I agree. Yeah, she really fell on her sword when she explained, uh, you know, the the whole situation, what happened. She was completely transparent about what happened, and um, and they didn't care. They just went after her like rabid dogs. Um, do you think yeah, she was a scapegoat? I, I do think she's a scapegoat. You know, where is Vanderbilt in here? They settled with the family kind of admitting there that they did wrong, but, um, you know, why aren't, why aren't they going to jail? Why aren't the makers of the medication machine going to jail? Why, why aren't the people who decided not to put a scanner in the, in the PET scan room, why aren't they going to jail? Why aren't the people you know, who decided to stretch nurses beyond the breaking point, why aren't they going to jail? And when they were taking, prosecuting her to take away her license, they, you know, they, were, they made a specific point at, at one point that we aren't talking about systems here. We are just talking about the individual. We're not here to look at the system. It's like, well, she didn't operate in a vacuum. She operated in a system. So she if we want to know. Go ahead. If we want to get to the bottom of why mistakes happen so that we can prevent the next one, this is completely the wrong way to go about it. This is the old way to go about it. Well, not that before we were putting people in jail, but still this firing people and blaming blaming the the, the, the final person in the chain who is almost always the nurse. The nurse is the person who's at the end of the line delivering the care. So we're the ones who catch most of the mistakes, but we also make a big chunk of mistakes because we're the ones who do things. People are deciding how, stre how thin to stretch nurses. They're not doing anything but pushing a pencil around. We are the ones who do things. So yeah, we are where the mistakes happen. And how will, what kind of an effect will this have on the quality of patient care moving forward? Chilling. It's going to be hard to get nurses to, or people to come into the nursing profession. Ooh, I make one mistake, one bad day. I'm going to jail for 12 years. You know, who would want, who would want to be a nurse in that environment? Um, and there's also this concept of just culture that has come about in the last, I'm not sure when, 10 or 15 years or something, that um, we're going to try to get to the root cause of why why problems happen so we can uh, examine system failures and that human error should be uh, consoled, not punished, not thrown to jail. That, that you know, there's this uh, great reading for anybody who wants to learn more from the Inst Institute of Safe Medication Practices has examined this case thoroughly, but it seems like these documents they put out didn't make it into the trial because I can't imagine if the jury had heard 
that what they had put forward would ever convict her. So com- such compelling reading the Institute of uh, for Safe Medication Practices. But they talk a lot about just culture and how if we want to get to the bottom of problems, we have to uh, console people who make error. It's not that she was reckless. She made an error. She wasn't trying to no, there, no malice risky here. at all. Yeah. So if we want to um, uh, fix system problems, we have to think about the, the system, how we treat people. This is not the way. This is the opposite way. This is going back 200 years. And, you know, I hate to say that errors are inevitable, but they do occur in hospitals. And as you say, mostly by nurses, but a lot of physicians make errors as well. It, it can be career ending. Uh, 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 you know, it's a, their self-fulfilling prophecy in a way that I've met many doctors and nurses who made a mistake. I, I remember saying to one nurse, it's a mistake you can, you know, you can recover from this. Nobody had died. And she, I said, everybody makes mistakes. And she said, not me. And I'm done. And she quit. I, I know somebody else who went through a review, um, was certainly not criminally charged, but was went through a hospital review. She quit as well, utilized her nursing to go into a business practice. Um, a physician whose patient bled out in the OR, she never did surgery again. You know, this has such a, detrimental and traumatic effect on the person who makes the mistake. But basically, healthcare has has changed uh, forever. As you say, nurses are going to be so nervous to go into this um, career. It's such a dangerous precedent. Yeah, they call it, you know, that the second victim syndrome, that the person who commits the error also becomes victimized. They have long-lasting emotions of Shame, guilt, self-doubt, belief, disbelief, you know, fear. And uh, they're more likely to uh, harm themselves. They, they blame themselves. So it's, uh, it's devastating to the person who commits these errors. And they happen so often, you know, some research shows they happen, medication errors happen in up to 33% of patients. That's, a, that's how I, often I, they happen. I know. You know I'm, I'm not surprised not, at all. Yeah, but hospitals don't staff nurses well enough to prevent these errors because they stretch us so thin. There's one, you know, one patient uh, confused and climbing out of bed all the time, and the next patient is teetering on the edge of their heart is too slow or their heart is too fast. The next one's going into septic shock, and you've got six of these patients to juggle all at once. It is untenable. You cannot do everything at once. Plus, and now they have this charting that takes... Uh, twice as much time as we have to take care of patients. Literally, research shows the charting takes twice as much time as we, we can give to patients. So, it's, you, It certainly does. Yeah, put, you put nurses in that situation and you set us up to fail. And every day I go into the, yeah, I'm an ICU nurse, every day I go into the clinical setting, it feels like I'm going into a viper pit. Will I come out of this alive in 12 hours? I don't know. It's nerve wracking. It's hard to sleep. It's hard to feel at ease. It's, it's really hard to be a nurse. It, it is so difficult, but thank you so much for your service. And I can imagine it got that much worse during the pandemic. Thanks yeah. for coming on and talking about this very, very sad story. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Maureen.
You're very welcome. That is Sandy Summers, Executive Director at The Truth About Nursing. Coming up next, we're talking about your relationship. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. Amy Schumer is hosting the Oscars tonight. And uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of hers. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people that get turned off by some of her raunchy humor, but um, I actually think she's hilarious. And I think she, you know, brings, raises awareness about a lot of health conditions, Asperger's, ADHD, hyperemesis, gravidarum, something I suffered from. Um, but recently, Amy Schumer revealed that she also suffers from a hair pulling disorder. And she said, I think everybody has a big secret and that's mine. She has struggled with the condition since childhood, which is interesting. And, you know, according to the Mayo Clinic, the hair pulling disorder, uh, trichotillomania, is a mental disorder that involves recurrent irresistible urges to pull out hair from your scalp, eyebrows, or other areas of your body, despite making efforts to stop. Uh, she said, and I thought this was just so sad, she said that this had started uh, when she was a child, and it was right around the time her family was going through a particularly difficult time, which is often the case when things like this may begin. She may have had a genetic predisposition to this. It was just turned on by the fact that her family was having a very difficult time. Her father had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and filed for bankruptcy. And then her mom left the family. And then her mother married her best friend's married, well, he wasn't married anymore, father. So, I mean just how much can a seven-year-old handle? I mean, honestly, sometimes I think decisions that some parents make are, you know, dare I say, so selfish, and they don't realize the impact on children. But genetics definitely does play a role. And, and Amy spoke about how she's a little bit nervous about her son, Gene, having the same condition. And anyway, it's tough, but I, 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 that's why I often think about parents who are considering divorce, you know, really consider your children in that. And to be honest with you, if you don't deal with the issues that you have in your first marriage, I promise you, you'll bring them to your second and your third. And if you have more children, the impact of those difficult times uh, can will come through your children. And, and oftentimes parents think that children, they're just fine. They're going to be fine, but they are not necessarily fine. And look at Amy has struggled uh, with this condition for her entire life, basically, trichotillomania. So I wanted to talk about trichotillomania. But before I do that, I just wanted to make a good point that, you know, we often say everybody struggles you know, sometimes you think you're the only one that struggles in life. And then people will say, no, everybody struggles. Everybody has something, but people don't share their pain. They don't share their shame. They don't share their secrets. And, and that's why I have so much respect for people who share their stories, because sharing of your story might destigmatize whatever condition that is, and it just might help other people. So I encourage you to tell somebody, you don't have to tell the world, tell somebody 
or if somebody tells you they have something, maybe you can share something that you suffer from as well. You know, in this life, it seems we're, we're judging other people all the time. I mean, even with cancer diagnoses, I've heard people say, you know, well, did they have, you know, were they at risk for getting cancer? It's, it's a blame game. You know, it could very well be a genetic situation, but we, we want to go and we want to blame somebody. And somehow that makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Uh, and oftentimes the problems in life relate to self-esteem, not feeling good about yourself. And so wanting affirmation or accolades is often tied to you don't feel that great about yourself. You want somebody else to affirm that you're okay. But you know what? It's okay to be okay with who you are in this world. I just got to be okay. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit more about trichotillomania. And it is a very um, challenging condition. And of course, it's on a continuum. Some people suffer differently than others. It's a body-focused repetitive behavior. And it it's in line with skin picking and related disorders. So there are actually treatment guidelines for this. But people suffer from this body-focused repetitive behavior type of condition, or BFRB, such as trichotillomania, which is a hair-pulling disorder, or excoriation, which is skin picking. I've known people who had skin picking disorders. You know, oftentimes people feel alone, confused, frightened, and they also feel like they need help. But many people are too embarrassed, too, too ashamed to seek help. Many professionals have outdated or, or simply erroneous information regarding the effective treatment options for trichotillomania and some of the other body-focused repetitive behaviors. But there are treatment options. But first, I'd like to talk to you in general about BFRBs. And they refer to any repetitive self-grooming behavior, for example, pulling, picking, biting, or scraping of the hair, skin, or nails. This results in damage to the body. In addition to hair pulling, some of the other behaviors include picking or biting of the skin. You see people picking at their nails often, but or they might pick at acne or scabs or other skin imperfections quite commonly, quite honestly. Um, they might pick at their cuticles, their lips, or their cheeks. And all of these behaviors are considered to be BFRBs only because they share certain characteristics. But they're normal grooming behaviors, and the BFRBs arise when the behaviors cause personal distress in a person's life. And sometimes it depends on how um, severe the BFRB is, but it can actually interfere with a person's daily functioning. And trichotillomania, the hair pulling disorder, is one of two of the most common BFRBs. The other is excoriation or skin picking disorder. So when, when one suffers from trichotillomania, uh, they have recurrent pulling out of their own hair, and that results in hair loss. There are repeated attempts to decrease or stop the hair pulling, and they just can't. And that hair pulling causes clinically significant distress or impairment in a person's social life or occupation. They might cause problems at work or other areas of life. It's 
this hair pulling cannot be related in order to make the diagnosis, the hair pulling cannot be related to or attributed to another medical condition or a dermatological condition, for example. And the hair pulling is not better explained by symptoms of another mental disorder, for example, in an attempt to improve a perceived defect or a flaw in appearance, like in body dysmorphic disorder, which we've covered on the show in the past. Then the second most common one is the excoriation, which is the skin picking. And that is recurrent picking at the skin. It does, of course, cause significant clinical distress in a person's life. Um, this can actually lead to infection. And, um, and so that's, that's a big problem when people get repeated skin infections. Oftentimes, these people engage in BFRBs and the picking or the pulling or the scratching or the biting when they are sedentary, for example, when they go to bed at night or when they're reading or listening to a lecture in class, for example, when they're not doing something. So sitting at a desk and they're just kind of bored basically with life. And they are typically highly focused on uh, their picking or their pulling. And they're often looking in the mirror when they are picking at acne, for example, and they are trying to achieve smooth skin, but it actually is going to make it worse. Um, and, and as I said, it can lead to infections, but, um, the, and they don't even realize, um, this is going on if you will, but other people will find signs. They will find accidentally find a pile of hair in the bathroom or scratches on one's skin. I do recall somebody having um, scabs around there. One of my colleagues scabs around her nail beds all the time. And, and I do recall her picking at them all the time. And what happens for these people is that there's a sensation that draws the fingers to the site of the picking or the pulling of the hair. And it can be a sensation like itching or tingling or pain or other uh, physical experiences, but it's almost as though their hands are drawn to that sensation. The, the person is seeking a sensation either on the fingers or elsewhere. And then they're kind of running the hair root along the mouth or rubbing coarse hair between the fingers. Anyway, they are seeking this sensation, but they're also feeling the sensation. Other times people report that they are searching for a particular characteristic of the hair. So they're searching for thicker hair or coarser hair or skin. They're searching for rough or jagged or bumpy skin, but they want to actually um, fix this impairment. Oftentimes the reason, um, kids, people get this is because of stress. And typically it happens between the ages of 11 and 15 years. And the onset of hair pulling is generally in the younger age, age and around eight, 11 to 12 years of age. And the skin picking is typically around 14 to 15 years of age, which is when people get pimples. Um, and so people squeeze. I always thought they were just like pimple squeezers and non-pimple squeezers. <laughs> I was in the non-pimple squeezer type um, category, I should say. Um, but uh, among adult hair pullers, females outnumber males nine to one, but it's equal male to female when hair pulling begins in childhood. But there's nine times as many women who pull their hair have this um, particular condition, trichotillomania to boys. So we really don't know why, but there's 
why people have BFRBs, but it could be an inherited predisposition. Um, there's also, if you have a relative, you're more likely to be at risk for something like this. So there's, it's not the first one in the family. Um, and also it, it's associated with a stress like Amy Schumer described. Um, you know, so family stress factors are big, but you also have to take into consideration the temperament of a child, the environment, the age of onset, but, you know, really look at your family stress factors, really look at the life you're leading and what impact is that having on your children? So it's, you know, it's very important not to deny um, what um, is happening in your children's life. Often what's happening in, in your life, the stress is actually happening for them as well, but they often remain silent. Some people think that this is an OCD, but actually in the DSM-5, it's classified as obsessive compulsive and related disorders. It doesn't necessarily mean if you have um, trichotillomania or um, skin picking, that there's a deeper problem, not necessarily, but it is associated with that stress, but it's not to say you have some deep rooted psychological problem. There is treatment for BFRBs. That's the most important thing. And the very first thing one should do is become knowledgeable about the problem and the treatments. There is a foundation, the TLC foundation for body focused repetitive behaviors. And the website is triple W bfrb.org. They provide up-to-date information regarding BFRBs. But some of the other treatments are psychotherapy. Um, and one of the main treatments within psychotherapy is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is a therapeutic approach that focuses on identifying the thoughts and feelings and behaviors that are problematic and teaches people how to change these elements so that they can lead to reduced stress and have more productive functioning. Who can't use a little cognitive behavioral therapy? I know I can. Then there's also habit reversal training or HRT. It's an early treatment for BFRBs. And it's, uh, it was actually developed by Nathan Azrin and Gregory Nunn. And it's the method that has been examined most in research studies. And there's varying number of components in the treatment package. But you know what? Some things work for some people and other things work for other people. But the three components of that are awareness training and competing response training and then social support as well. So there's also comprehensive behavioral treatment and um, sometimes medication, but not always. That's not necessarily. But you always want to choose a therapist that you connect with and that helps you explore the use of the individualized strategies that are available and to target sort of internal and external triggers, somebody who will work with you and that you can actually uh, feel comfortable with, you don't feel judged and you are, um, who, who knows your values as a patient. And, um, you know, there's also something called acceptance and commitment therapy. And that's a promising treatment approach that just beefs up the um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And this was developed by Stephen Hayes. It's a, it's a totally different um, type, but it understands what is meaningful and important to the individual. And I think that's really important. And, and I know they're doing a lot of work with that for people who have bipolar disorder as well. So there is treatment. You don't have to suffer alone. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. Um, there are so many different options. Dialectical behavioral therapy is another one. So get seek help that you need and um, you don't have to live that way.
Anyway, thank you once again, Amy Schumer, for sharing another aspect of your life with us that may help other people. Do you drink coffee in the morning? I, I was never a coffee drinker until I hit about age 28 and I drank seven cups in a row. <laughs> um, anyway, I was craving it. So now I drink one cup of coffee a day and it's not necessarily because I need it. In fact, if I forget it, I'm okay. I don't get a headache or anything. I just like to have something warm and cozy in the morning. That's really it. I could have tea or hot chocolate. It wouldn't really matter. Hot water sometimes doesn't matter. But I am interested in the fact that a recent study has come out that drinking two to three cups of coffee daily could benefit your heart. And so I'm interested in anything can, that can benefit anyone's heart because I think it makes you a kinder, sweeter, gentler person if your heart is working well. Drinking two to three cups of coffee every day may benefit the heart, according to studies being presented at the American College of Cardiology's 71st annual scientific session. Now, I know that a lot of people drink more than one cup of coffee a day. And um, so for those who are drinking two to three, you're in denial, you're actually drinking six to seven. <laughs> a lot of people drink a lot of coffee. Um, but the consumption of the caffeinated beverage is associated with a lower risk of heart disease and dangerous heart rhythms, as well as a longer lifespan. And so that is fantastic news. So I actually saw this on LinkedIn, um, where somebody, a, a friend of mine had posted it. And so I said, well, how about the sugar and cream that goes in it as well? And he figured, <laughs> he responded and said, you know, it would be better the straight coffee. But um, not that I, I do love sugar. I, I love cream and sugar in a coffee. Um, however, I do go with <laughs> something I'm ashamed about. I have coffee mate and sweeteners in my coffee. And apparently there is an increased cancer risk that is, so, that is associated with artificial sweeteners. And basically it was, it was done in the public library of science medicine and the French authors actually have concluded that those who consumed sweet and low, there have higher risk of overall cancer. Anyway, not good news. Right now, I know normally we talk about this at the beginning of the show, but uh, Dr. Jason Kindershot can't be with us tonight. Uh, so I still want to talk about something that is uh, still alive and making a lot of us unwell. This is probably on everyone's minds right now. Uh, the fact that uh, New York City, for example, their cases are up by 85%. When we really want to think about what we can expect, we think of England. Now I know that advice has been given to many women before. <laughs> think of England when it's so boring or dreadful <laughs> or you just don't like it. But now when we say think of England, it has a whole new meaning because it's not uh, a sexual connotation. It is a surge connotation. And if we look to England, things, England is in dire straits. COVID cases have climbed by a million in a week in the UK. And that's according to the Office for National Statistics. I understand that they're no longer going to be collecting statistics in England, which is actually going to be problematic for a lot of industries that uh, 
function there. Swab tests suggest that about one in every 16 people is infected with COVID um, as the contagious Omicron variant BA2 continues to spread throughout that country. And that is what is continuing to spread in New York as well. In the UK, about 4.2 million people have been infected with COVID. That's up from 3.3 million the week before. So if you recall, um, you know, we, we have looked to England or we th- we've thought of England and then two to three weeks later, we are in the same situation. So I- I'm curious what, how, what you feel um, about this pandemic. Is it over? Is it, um, is it over for you? Are you just done with it? Are you still wearing a mask? Give me a call. The number to call is one 399 That's one 399 9898. Do you feel like there's another surge um, going on? Or do you feel like um, that you are just tired of this whole thing? And um, you are just done with COVID and that's it. All of a sudden it's over. And, you know, we look to the war in Ukraine. Um, But actually the Ukraine migration is also contributing to the um, surge this most recent surge that we are seeing and that we will soon be seeing in um, parts of the West as well. Um, We're actually seeing it in Toronto also. Cases are up in Toronto, cases are up in New York, and and the biggest problem remains the same. It is the fact that there's going to be a big hindrance on the hospital resources, and that has been what the problem has been all along is that we are actually going to see issues in staffing because many staff, in particular in Ontario, the hospitals are seeing a rise in staff testing positive for COVID. And and so when your staff is testing positive for COVID and they're sick with it, they actually can't come to work. And so that is a problem. You know, the nurses are so burnt out after this. You know, it's been extremely difficult for nurses this pandemic, not only, um, you know, have they worked incredibly hard and then they had all of the support early on, if you recall, and then they lost the support of the public. The public was against healthcare workers, if you can believe that. Um, but we are seeing trends that we have seen before in, um, others in cities, So New York and Toronto, for example, we're probably going to see that in the um, prairies and then out in the West, because that is what um, has certainly happened. We have a couple of callers on the line, which is fantastic. We have Michael in Vancouver. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Are you there? Hello, I guess. Oh, Michael? Okay. Uh, We lost Michael. Feel free to call back, Michael. We have Ken, though, in Winnipeg. Hello, Ken. Hello, Margie. Marine, you're doing a wonderful job. We listen to you every week, and I get a lot of good results from uh, the opinions that you give. I'd like to ask you Uh on your professional opinion. What have your results been on the mood and energy enhancing light? 
the mood and energy enhancing light. You know, with anything in life, there's going to be a 30% placebo effect. But, but I do know that a lot of people have benefited from um, those um, seasonal affective disorders, lights, or, or mood and enhancing um, lights. Yeah, I think they're worth a try. For sure. Uh, yeah, I've got one. Um, especially, if, yeah. What do you think? Uh, I've got one. You After tell me. Ten days. I noticed I started getting more refreshed. So I could get the spring feeling rather than winter blouse. Nice. And uh, the reason I'm using it is I discussed it with my uh, family physician. I've got a rotator cuff that's giving me problems. I had operated on 16 years ago, and it feels like a sharp knife going through my. Uh, muscle into my joint. So the doctor put me on uh, an Naproxen 500s, and also mm -hmm. he recommended that I use the, uh, uh, just give me a second here, I use the uh, Diclofenac 10%. Diclofenac, yes. Yeah, the cream. And he said yep. rub it in that area that hurts the most once a day. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I Great. started rubbing in because I've got osteoarthritis. It was painful mm -hmm. for my fingers. So what I did is I used the Oral-B toothbrush. I bought extra adapters yes. to it, and it swirls in, a, in the system, and it's, it's actually easy for your hands to operate it. And uh, it lasts you 15, 20 minutes, and that's what the doctor required. Okay, that sounds great. Is that what you're putting the cream on with, with the Oral-B toothbrush? That's correct, because he said you don't need oh, a large great. amount of it. It is very expensive. But uh, yeah. I'm, I'm in the healthcare field too myself, but that's what he recommended, and I found that it has been working good. I'm going to have to go back and see him on my annual checkup again and tell him that this is what I'm doing because my physiotherapist said basically you will put it on with a rag on the stick, but, I mean, you'd smear all over uh, large area, and it is expensive. Exactly. That's such a great tip. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate it. I've got Michael back on the line. Hello, Michael from Vancouver. Hello. Hi, I'm, I'm sorry Hello. I lost you in the first time. Hello, can you hear me? No worries. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. Um, so I just wanted to comment on your first question about if COVID, are we done with COVID? I personally done with COVID a long time ago. Actually, after uh, the first incidents, uh, I had COVID in uh, 2020. And after I, uh, I recovered, I decided to uh, head down to, uh, to visit some family in Mexico. And oh. after, yeah, so it was, it was a very uh, eye-opening uh, experience because uh, during the time here in Vancouver, uh, especially, and in Canada in general, uh, there is other uh, issues with COVID uh, in terms of uh, lockdowns, all the negative things that happened because of lockdowns, where businesses were, mm -hmm. were, were going bankrupt. Uh, many people were having uh, issue with uh, going outside. Uh, people were depressed. On the other side, I found completely, uh, completely different when I went to Mexico. People were, were mm -hmm. uh, having their lives. It was. I think when we talk a lot about COVID, we tend to focus mostly on the healthcare aspect of of COVID, and we forget the other aspects of COVID. When COVID uh, and the, the indirect effects, which is like the lockdowns, the, the isolation, 
um, uh-huh. the drug abuse. And, 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 and I don't understand why are we just focusing on one thing in COVID, which is the healthcare. And I understand that healthcare workers are the most important during this whole pandemic uh, situation because they take care of us. But there are other, uh, um, I was uh, looking into the, 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 the businesses in Vancouver that went, went under during this last two years. Uh, there are at least uh, over 120 large businesses that went bankrupt in Vancouver alone. If we just, why are we just not focusing or we're just taking only one aspect of COVID, which is the healthcare and the infection, of course, and, and the, 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 how it affects the, the yeah. healthcare workers. No, no, it's not just the healthcare workers, but it's the hospital resources as well. So if they might not have enough IV solution, for example, or an intensive care unit bed, should you need it for a heart attack, for example. But, you know, we can't forget that we had three and a half million cases in Canada and close to 40,000 deaths from COVID. But you know what? We didn't do it right. We didn't do it perfectly. A lot of people benefited. You know, they started to make a lot more money. I met an Uber driver and he said he made so much money during uh, COVID. People were so generous toward him. But yes, a lot of people who had in the restaurant business, for example, lost their businesses. A lot of people lost jobs. I get it. There was so much. It's so difficult to balance. Um, but we, we must, you know, we, we have to just learn from our mistakes and, and move forward. But, you know, I understand you're done with COVID, but COVID may not be done with us. But thank you so much for your call. Really appreciate it. Now I have Frank on the line in Toronto. Hello, Frank. Hello, Hello. Frank. Can you hear me? Hi, Frank. I Hi, can Frank. Hear, yes, I can. I can hear me? I can. Loud and clear. Okay, perfect. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, I just think that um, the narrative hasn't changed since day one with uh, COVID. Um, and it's just very sad what's, that... What's that narrative? What's that narrative? Well, the narrative that, Which again... One? Well, let's look at it this way. When COVID first came out, they said that we're going to wait for this vaccine... If we reach herd immunity, which is 70%, then we'll be able to get things back on track and our lives back to normal, right? In anticipation that the vaccine was going to help protect people against COVID. Then the vaccine comes out, and then people are still getting sick. People are booster yes. shot, double, double vax, booster shot, and they're still getting Delta variant, they're still getting Omicron, they're still passing it on to other people who are double vaccinated, booster shotted. And I've experienced this in my own family, where, again, everybody's vaccinated. They get COVID in March of 2021. Then they get vaccinated after catching COVID. Then they get booster shots. Then they still catch COVID in December. So then we have our prime minister catching COVID during the fiasco in Ottawa. And he's booster right. shot. The thing is, the, the, first of all, herd immunity was never 70%. We needed about 88% over, over that, even like 93%. A lot of people did not get, we had much too low, much too much of a low in uptake of vaccinations to get anywhere near um, herd immunity. The second thing was, uh, the vaccines do not prevent you 100% from getting 
COVID, they, they actually have, you have lower burden of disease. The people who died, the people who were hospitalized, look at the data. I can send it to you if you want. They're the ones that were unvaccinated, but thank you so much for your call. Well, and I'm just going to take very quickly, I'm going to take Roy in Edmonton. Hey, Roy, how are you? Make it quick. <laughs> um, I just wanted, this hey. is off the topic. Okay, uh, perfect. I just wanted to say <laughs> that uh, you say you swim in the ocean. And uh, <laughs> yes. I was just wondering, uh, like all the poison and everything, and the, the whales, they uh, they let go of their behind there, about five or six of them. Aren't you afraid that the, the, the water's contaminated? No, I'm not. <laughs> You're not? Not at all. Oh, man, not at I tell you, that smell is hard to get rid of. It's well, very hard. Um, it depends. I think it depends where you swim. Anyway, I wouldn't swim in the Hudson River in New York, but uh, in on, in British Columbia, I would, <laughs> and uh, uh, other parts of the world. But thank you so much for your call. I appreciate yeah. you listening. You know that I swim. Anyway, what's most important is to stay warm afterward. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. We talk a lot about health and uh, also love and, and relationships. And sometimes that love can be too good to be true. And I often say to my patients, that's a sign. And oftentimes patients will come in to see me because they are experiencing physical symptoms and they are in a very toxic relationship and they kind of know it, but they don't actually really realize it. And, um, but oftentimes people are involved in relationships where there is coercive control. And this can be a life or death issue in a relationship, but so many people have absolutely no idea how to recognize it. There are behaviors like gaslighting, intimidation, isolation from family and friends. Those are early indicators of relationships that likely will turn into physical violence and even homicide. But so many people don't even recognize this as abuse. Abuse comes in so many different ways. I one time had a patient come into my clinical practice and she said to me, I'm having a relationship with my doctor. And, and she was so excited. And she said, I'm thinking of inviting him for Christmas. I happen to know who the doctor was. I said, this is a crime. Of course, I have to, you know, I have to give you the Coles note versions here. This isn't how it, it went exactly in the clinical practice, but I, I said basically a few points here. This is a crime. You do not have a relationship in the office with your doctor. Likely your doctor is having relationship with other patients as well. And, and your doctor also happens to be married. So I would can the Christmas invite. The patient was stunned, absolutely stunned. This was such an inappropriate relationship. Uh, later, that physician was found out and the appropriate action was taken, but lost their license, didn't go to jail anyway, like the nurse did, but that's another story. Um, but you know, there's other ways of abuse in a relationship and that certainly qualified as abuse in the relationship, but many people don't recognize it when they start saying, um, they don't want you texting your family or friends, for example. They want to know where you are at all times. And so, of course, social media hasn't helped in this regard because they want you to FaceTime 
to tell you where you are. You might be at work and you say, they say, where are you? And you say, I'm at work. And they say, prove it. I don't believe you. And, and so this kind of behavior, you know, initially people start out with getting on FaceTime, showing the office, whatever. I'm, I'm at work. I'm at the gym. I am here, there. But repeated, that happening repeatedly, even if that happened once, forget it. That is such a red flag. But people will do it over and over and over again. And then they will start to have heart palpitations and they will start to uh, be extremely nervous. And I had another patient who was in a relationship for about three months. Everything was amazing. They moved in together. This is very classic. They then moved in together and uh, the patient came to see me after about three weeks and said, I've made a, a huge error. I've moved in with this guy and I cannot live with him. And I've signed a lease and I don't know what to do. He is his anger. He is so angry all the time and he's yelling at me and he's controlling me and he's crying also another sign. He's depressed. And so then they went into this um, cycle of abuse where he was terrible, wanting her to prove where she was, not allowing her to call her mother or her father or her siblings, not allowing her to see her friends. And um, and so she became so nervous and had so much anxiety, but had recognized this early on. And she had apparently told her mother and her mother said something that a lot of mothers might say, um, you, you made your bed, you got to lie in it. Cause she didn't tell her the whole story. She just said, I, I can't live with this guy. And so the mother took it in another, as another meaning. And so the young woman carried on, um, living with the guy because she, it's, it's very hard. And so when she came to see me and realized after three weeks that she couldn't live with him, it took her a little while to actually get the truth out. And, and as it turned out, that person that she was in the relationship with had a, their mother actually was the same, was abusive to their father. This all came out in the wash as it does. Um, and the father had left the, that marriage uh, for about seven years or so because that father had had the trauma of being abused by the mother of this boyfriend of this girl. Are you following me here? <laughs> I'm following me. That's all that really matters. No. <laughs> anyway, it's often familial because, uh, you know, there are sociopathic tendencies that people have that dark triad. And this particular person was dark and depressed and he was very much controlling. And fortunately for this young woman, it did not end up in physical violence, but it was something I needed to educate her about. And she did get out of the relationship, fortunately. But as it turned out, the mother was the same toward her ex-husband. And the ex-husband suffered mentally, emotionally, mentally, and even physically. And it took him, you know, five, six years to recover. And then so he could re-enter his children's lives. Um, you know, oftentimes there's name calling, there's jealousy, there's isolation. People don't realize that they are in a relationship where somebody is confining you to the house. They they are so jealous. Initially, it starts out as, I love you so much. I don't want to share you with anybody. And that can be a common theme as well. But And oftentimes, violence can be normalized. And you know people will think, 
they they think it's normal because they have grown up with violence. Let me tell you that violence is never normal and verbal and emotional abuse can be so damaging and dare I say even more psychologically damaging for somebody than even physical. And I hate to say that because with physical, you can see bruises, a broken leg. With emotional, it's very hard to describe. Um, and so it's very important that you, if you think you're in a relationship that is coercive, that is controlling, that there is an imbalance of power, then you may look and see, is this what abuse looks like? I- am I being abused? And it's this type of abuse is actually called convert co- coercive control. And as I say, it can be an early indicator of relationships that will escalate into physical violence and even homicide, as I said. And that was my concern for this young woman who came to see me after moving in with her boyfriend, who by all accounts just had the most bizarre behavior. There's a growing body of research on this, but so many people don't recognize it as abuse and therefore it is often overlooked, sadly enough. But oftentimes it's those power games. There's gaslighting. I, I told you we were going to the party. No, you didn't tell me we were going to the party. No, I did. I did. There are lies. There are lies about where somebody is. And, and oftentimes people will lie about where they were because they begin to become afraid of their abuser, of their coercive, controlling abuser. There's blaming. There's cruelty. There's intimidation. All those things that we don't necessarily recognize as a form of violence under the criminal code of Canada. But it's very important if you if it smells like violence, if it looks like violence, but just understand violence doesn't look the same way. Uh, emotional violence does not look the same way as physical violence. And here's the thing, standing up to your abuser, to the controlling person of your life can be very helpful. But if you are in a relationship where you have restricted access to money or food or medicine, or if somebody you love is damaging your property, throwing things at a wall, punching the wall, hurting pets, disregarding um, items in the home or children or making disparaging comments about you or sending you barrages of text messages, monitoring your social media. All of these things can point to coercive control and they will, it will eventually affect your mental and your physical health. And that's what the show is all about. And the psychological consequences of this kind of controlling behavior can be long lasting. So do take care, reach out to somebody that you trust. You can email me nurse talk at hotmail.com because this is one of the least understood forms of violence. Tonight, we're talking about a lot, a lot of things that seem what they aren't, but they're not. (laughs) Anyway, it's funny how that is like, you know, think of England doesn't exactly mean think of England in the way you think of think of England, look at England, (laughs) think of England, they're having a surge. That's a little message for us anyway. So it's like, hmm, the things that you think mean something, they actually mean something very different. Anyway, um, just like the next topic that I want to talk about, you know, and I am one of these people that just, you know, people will tell me I'm not going to get COVID because I take zinc and magnesium and vitamin D and all of these minerals and supplements. And I just think you're just aside from vitamin D, you know, maybe calcium for some people. Um, but you know, all of these like super, super this, and all these vitamins and minerals that people are 
paying so much money for thinking that they're building their immune system. They're not. Uh, but there was something else that I just thought was hilarious, um, which is, uh, you know, you might see people walking around doing it and, you know, there's like these energy drinks and these powders to stick in water that, um, you know, will give you more energy if you're hungover, maybe I don't think it will, but nonetheless, um, there's something new that is out there and it's called hydration multipliers. Well, let me just tell you, they actually don't exist, but these are these electric electrolyte powders that they make this comically unscientific claim that their products multiply hydration. Are you falling for that? I didn't fall for it. Anyway, there's a bunch of powdered drink mixes that have different stated benefits. Like I mentioned, energy, this one, this powder pack is energy. That one is for sleep. But you know, if you see something that is a hydration multiplier, actually run the other way. Do not waste your money. The the claim of hydration multiplication makes absolutely zero sense. But we have to understand first what hydration is. And, and hydration is simply the process of drinking water or, or consuming water-containing foods like fresh fruit or soup, for example, that, that replaces the water that you lose during the day. And then they help you to maintain proper biological function. But you cannot multiply hydration unless you drink another glass of water or two and one times two is two. <laughs> um, but you know, we don't actually, I mean, it's just the most ridiculous thing, but a lot of people will drink this to, you know, I find people that I know who drink these, they, they might be living on the edge. They might be, um, you know, working extremely hard. They might be in the, in the financial business, you know, where they're having to get up super early, for example, or have long days uh, at work, or they're, you know, trying to manage, you know, home life and work life and, and school life. And, you know, a lot of nurse practitioners I know, um, you know, they're, they're working and then they're going to school as well. And so that's, you know, it's exhausting. And so they are sold on these hydration multipliers, which are nothing but ridiculous. Um, so there is this, what these hydration multipliers do is they claim that they rapidly rehydrate patients with severe or dehydration, um, usually by diarrhea. Um, but this is, you know, you can get dehydrated if you have vomiting or diarrhea, for example. And so they'll say that these are going to help to rehydrate you just a little bit faster. Um, but if you don't have cholera, for example, or severe diarrhea, there's no medical evidence at all as to why you would need to rehydrate. If you just drink enough water-based fluids to ensure that your urine is clear 90% of the time, you should be good. Now I have a history of a kidney stone. I never ever want to get one again. And so it was recommended that I drink 10 to 12 cups of water and I make sure that I get that. Um, but this idea that we can multiply hydration is, you know, just so far from the truth. Now, something else about this is people will have these multiple, multiple hydrators, whatever, multiplication hydrators actually have electrolytes in them. And so they have sodium and potassium. And paradoxically, that sodium can actually make you dehydrated because some of them have like 500 milligrams of sodium in them and people are putting them in every single drink. So but the little known fact about the human body is that we can drink all the water we want, but very little of that water actually gets absorbed and used by the body. And so that is simply not true. 
There's no evidence to support that claim about these multiplication hydrators. Uh, it's it's just made up nonsense. And oftentimes these things are you know, false claims to get you to buy something. If you want to rehydrate and, you know, thirst is a sign that you're dehydrated, drink some water. That is the best thing that you can do. And in fact, humans have evolved for millions of years, hydrating just fine from water and food without those electrolyte powders that not only contain sodium, potassium, they also have uh, some of them have a lot of sugar in them as well. And so that's not going to help either. And in fact, one of them that I looked at, their ingredients, the number one ingredient was pure cane sugar. And then it was citric acid, potassium, sodium. So be careful, beware, get back to basics. Don't spend your money on that. Um, Save your money for a house (laughs) because that's how expensive these things are. Anyway, don't waste your money there. And, you know, look into these things, look into, you know, into how you can live your best life. And that is through good nutrition, drinking water, cutting down on the alcohol. Um, You know, oftentimes people will also get these rehydrating IV solutions after they've had a little bit too much to drink as well. But, you know, good way to live is just getting a good amount of exercise and eating nutritiously not consuming so much alcohol, going to bed at the same time every night. You want to be feel good and be productive the next day. Get your rest, eat well, get some exercise and cut down on the alcohol because that actually gives you a dry mouth and makes you a little dehydrated as well. But anyway, hydration multipliers, uh-uh, <laughs> not on my list. Anyway, it has been a pleasure being here with you this evening as always. For more information, you can go to my website, MaureenMcGrath.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Back to the Bedroom. I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn, where I post quite a bit about health education, health educational subjects that um, come to mind, or I might see a patient and um, write about a case in there to help you live your best life possible. Love getting all of your emails. So keep them coming. Nurse talk at hotmail.com. You can always uh, text me on, on these shows as well, or tweet any health information or email me some of the subjects that you would like to learn about, because I always love hearing from, from my listeners. So hopefully there's a little bit of help for you in this program, helping you live a happier, healthier, life that is just more about relationships, more about getting back to the basics and more about being informed and uh, getting the right information, because that's what I always try to do for you. So thank you so much for tuning in tonight. And I hope you enjoyed the Oscars. (laughs) They were so great. A a truer line has never been spoken. Amy Schumer, they hired three women because it's cheaper than one man. I mean, there's just some inequity out there. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.